Now, before I read the text, uh, this text tells a story, and in uh, literary analysis, it would be called a narrative of resolution. Aristotle talked about the nature of stories, and he said stories basically involve five separate things. That is a narrative of resolution. It's like watching a television show. Let's say it's a murder. And so you have first the narrative problem. Let's say in the first three minutes of the television show you're watching, a crime show, a murder occurs. Nobody knows yet who did it, but it's been found out. And so there's a rising action of tension of the unresolved nature of the murder. Who did it? Why? Motives are asked about who are reasonable suspects. And then it reaches an apex of tension called uh, a turning point. In the middle of the story, there's a turning point. Maybe DNA is discovered, blood, um, uh, fibers from clothing or whatever. You can tell I watch a lot of these. But anyway, that's, that's what happens. And then there's what's called falling. Uh, tension begins to release and fall to what is called the denouement or the end of the story where the tension is resolved. They find out who did it. They arrest them. They bring them in and they compile all the evidence and make a case. That is precisely what Luke is doing in this narrative about this attempt, this plot, to kill the Apostle Paul. And so there are three simple things in this story. We see the plot is hatched, we see it is exposed, and finally it is prevented. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin reading. I'm going to start in verse 11 because it's really... Uh, integral or integral, whichever you prefer, to the nature of this narrative. The following night, the Lord stood by him, that is Paul, and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune, to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine this case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister, that is his nephew, heard of their ambush, so that he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and he brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him aside by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire something more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. 
So the tribune dismissed the young man charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night, that's nine o'clock, and provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor, Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. By the way, that's 37 miles in one night. That is where I come from. That is moving it. That is flat getting it. 37 miles. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and uh, delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive, and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. This is God's word. Let us pray together. Father, we ask that the words... Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. So today, we look at this fascinating story as Paul is led to escape this murder plot and arrive safely to the uh, governor, Felix. Uh, the su- this section highlights, in many ways, Paul's Jewish opponents and what they were prepared to do and the lengths they were willing to go to totally rid themselves of this guy. For some reason, I can hear Robert De Niro saying, I want him dead. I want him dead. I want him gone. So 40 guys, assassins, that means they had daggers. And why it would take 40 to kill him, I don't know. But more than 40 guys took an oath. Luke mentions this three times, that they were bound by an oath to kill him. They would not eat, they would not drink, until Paul was dead. Now, in the light of this, uh, it's very important to understand how Luke weaves the story. He He continues to give us the history of Paul's years in captivity and trials and persecutions upon his arrival in Rome for his hearing before Caesar. We have mentioned that Luke has at least two purposes for writing the book of Acts this way and for giving these accounts. 
one for the outsider or inquirer, and one for the insider or believer. For the outsider, these accounts show how Paul and Christianity was continually found not guilty by Roman law when charged with being destabilizing or harmful to society. There were numbers of cases held, and never once was Christianity found to be in violation of Roman law, which is similar to laws we have. So Luke had an apologetic purpose, uh, a way of defending the faith of Christianity as being legitimate, not just a hybrid of Judaism, but rather a thing in itself. Paul was a recipient of a great deal of injustice. On the other hand, for the believer, these accounts show how God can overrule and work his will through tribulations and suffering. Paul was the recipient of a great deal of injustice, yet God stayed by him and his mighty hand uh, was used throughout all of it. This account and the account of the shipwreck in Acts 27 are some classic examples of how God masters and controls historical events. But before we proceed into the three major points of the sermon, I want you to look again with me in verse 11 of chapter 23. How does verse 11 shed light on God's activity in the rest of the passage? In 2311, Jesus appears to Paul and he promises him that he will testify in Rome. It is a pledge, uh, a promise by the Lord to keep Paul alive until he gets to Rome despite all the numerous plots and efforts to have him killed. Therefore, the passage about Paul's escape from 40 would-be assassins is not recorded as a series of fortunate coincidences, but is rather an account of God's providential control of all the circumstances of history so as to infallibly work out his own purposes. Luke is showing us that Jesus' guarantee right before Paul's escape so that we cannot miss the hand of God in every one of these events. And we'll look at them in closely in a moment. In 23, verse 12 and following, Jesus begins to demonstrate the way he keeps his pledge to Paul. We are allowed to see, as we seldom are, with very specific detail, God's specific purpose directing all the so-called coincidences and so-called random events of history. I never realized before, as many times as I've taught on the providence of God, how much this passage resonates with it, uh, the doctrine of the providence of God. But verse 11 also shows us something about Paul's heart and his attitude. Uh, this assurance tells us much about Paul's heart. Notice that Jesus does not assure him that he will escape captivity or suffering or injustice or even death ultimately. It doesn't say that. He's not promised freedom, security, or safety, only an effective witness at a particular location. All that Jesus guarantees for Paul is that he will survive, he will get to Rome, and there he will be able to testify about the gospel in public. And so that is what is promised. 
For most people, such a promise as this would be of no comfort at all. Let me tell you something about God's promises. He promises to take us through, to go with us, and ultimately we will arrive at the goal. For us, that would be death and being brought into the presence of the Lord to be with him forevermore. God promises he's going to get us there. But it's not a straight line. And it's not without suffering. And it's not without tension. Can you imagine what must have gone on in Paul's mind when he just had Jesus appear to him in a vision and say, you're going to testify uh, about me in the gospel. If I'm Paul, I'm thinking I'm getting on a boat, going to Rome, it's over. But no, no. Every fiber of his being is tested to believe that in everything that happens to him. These plots come up uh, to, to basically end his life. For those of us who love comfort and whose greatest longing is for personal peace and affluence and comfort, Paul is being given his highest life goal and therefore this word from Christ was profoundly encouraging and empowering. One commentator uh, explains, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, that Paul's attitude, spirit, and conduct throughout all the rest of the book of Acts, this assurance meant much to Paul during the delays and the anxieties of the next two years and goes far to account for the calm and dignified bearing which seemed to mark him out as a master of events rather than their victim. You see, that's the only way you can keep from victimhood yourself. You will either be a victim of life or you will be an overcomer in life. To be a victim of life is not to witness and see God's hand in the doing of what's going on in your life. You're not able to discern and lay hold of the problems. We have in our culture today what I call the justification by victimhood. In other words, the way I become a righteous person in today's culture is by pleading my status of victimhood. But what kept Paul from becoming a weak victim? And what Paul understood was he, he was able to see that uh, he is not a victim at all. What a great way to put it. To the uninformed observer, Paul looks like a victim. He looks like a person completely out of control. Yet Paul's spirit and conduct, especially as it will be evidenced in his speeches before his captors, shows a man with a very different perspective. He was a master of events rather than their victim. He was not cringing in a corner, whining like a little boy. There was a greatness and confidence about him. He knew that no one had any power over him except that which was lent to them by his Lord and for his purposes. Jesus said the same thing in John 19, 11. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And so one of the most important things we need to ground ourselves in as believers is being able to interpret the events that come into our life through the lenses of the promises of God. We are not victims. We are not. We are overcomers by faith. Do we have anything like that, like the promise here that is made to Paul? Well, Paul was given a very specific and remarkable promise that he would make it alive to Rome. 
And we have nothing so specific in the Bible, but we have something that covers all the necessary territory anyway. First, we have the assertion in Ephesians 1, verse 11, that God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. God foreordains everything that comes to pass. We understand that, that that is what the Scriptures teach. Thus we see that the circumstances of life, every one of them, are being influenced by Him so that they follow His plan. But this bare fact becomes a remarkable assurance in Romans 8.28. There we are told that God works, that is, He controls, directs, shapes, influences in all things, every single circumstance and event, for the good of those who love Him who have been called according to His purpose. This is the guarantee that God's plan is for our good and that nothing can thwart it. And the ultimate plan of God for us is to conform us to the image of God. All things that touch your life, whether good, bad, evil, glorious, are there for the purpose of shaping you into His image. He will accomplish that goal almost ruthlessly in His desire and passion and pursuit of you. He will take every event. That's why we as Christians have no right to be depressed about things. We look at the situation in life, and I, I'm not telling you we, that I don't get depressed. I get depressed because I'm a sinner, you know. So I, and I know depression is more complicated than that, and I know it has something to do with physiology, and I know sometimes people need medication. I'm not talking about that. But what I'm talking about is when depression is sin. When, when I allow life to... to to close in on me and I see myself becoming a victim and you know what I've discovered people don't like to be around people who are whining all the time they just don't like it I mean do you like to be around a whining baby well maybe if you're a grandparent for a little bit the good thing about being a grandparent is you can hand them back and you can leave but here's the deal we have to learn to look through the glasses of God's promises when things come crashing into our lives or we will actually live under the circumstances. They will be our master. They will control what we see and how we live. But as a, as a person uh, believing what we believe in Reformed theology, we ought to be more optimistic in one hand and more realistic than anyone else out. Uh, around us. I'm not saying painful things don't happen. They do. I'm not saying disappointments don't occur. They do. I'm not saying we will not suffer loss. We will. But it's how we look at it. And what made Paul, in this case, such a unique person is the way that he applied this to his own life because he was the one that ultimately wrote this promise uh, in the book of Romans. This profound and comprehensive promise should have the same effect on us as Acts 23, verse 11's promise had on Paul. We do not have as concrete assurance you will live at least another two years, but we do know that we will get what we would have asked for if we knew all he knows. So Romans 8:28 really comes down to being the same thing that Paul had. 
We have a case study in this promises application in Genesis 50:20, where Joseph says to his brothers who sold him into slavery, you meant it to me for evil, but God meant it for good to save much people alive. You know, if his brothers hadn't done that, if his brothers hadn't thrown him in that pit uh, where the Midianites were coming by and they had proposed a whole plot to uh, kill him. First they wanted to kill him and the older brother Reuben stepped forward and said, hold it, not a good idea. Here's what we'll do. We'll throw him in this pit. We'll take this coat of many colors. He's been rubbing that in our face. I'm just assuming Reuben said this. If Reuben had been me, this is what I would have said. I'm sick of this coat of many colors. I'm sick of his snide little dreams. Let's take the dreamer, chunk him in the thing, uh, take blood, rub it all over his coat, take it back to Jacob and said, Joseph's dead, and it's over. We're done. But if they hadn't done that to Joseph, Joseph would have never been sold into slavery. Joseph would have never been taken to Egypt. Joseph would have never risen to the power level he did in Egypt to save Israel through whom the Lord Jesus Christ came. Joseph said, you meant, you meant this to destroy me. What you did to me was evil. What you did to me was evil. But God meant it for good to save much people alive. Now I'm going to give you a quote that I absolutely believe is true, but sometimes I hate it. This quote is by John Newton the writer of Amazing Grace, who was at one time a slave trader, whom God miraculously converted. He said this, Everything is necessary that he sins. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Let me read that again. Nothing, everything, excuse me, everything is necessary that he sins. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. That's a hard one. That's a hard one. Think about it. Think about it. God knows what he's about. He knows the, uh, the end from the beginning. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Therefore, we have the same basic resources the Apostle Paul did um, to forgive his brothers and to be able to fight, face life with this form in the same basic assurance. We have the capability to face even terrible danger and disasters with confidence and peace that Paul shows us here. And so we understand something of the providence of God. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a statement of faith for those of us who are Presbyterian, uh, it says this, chapter 5 of Providence. God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence. You know what providence is? It's made up of two words, pro, video. Video means to see, pro means before. It means to see before. God sees before and shapes according to his infallible foreknowledge and free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory and of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. And that providence that he 
governs and preserves and upholds over the entire created order of both animate and inanimate objects and people is exhaustive. It is meticulous. God oversees. God, uh, we're, we're not simply uh, on our own out there as his children. And so that providence involves not only primary causes, the ones he determines and decrees, but secondary agents. And in this case, we have secondary agents who have decided they're going to kill the Apostle Paul. But think about this for a moment. Who was it that told on them? Who was it that told on them? Well, that's a very interesting question, and I'm so glad you asked it. And up here somewhere, I've got an answer. Who was it that told on him? It was his nephew. Now, understand this. We know from what Paul says that uh, this is no coincidence. How does a passage show us? John Stott says the following. The most cunning of human plans cannot succeed if God opposes them. How does this passage show us this? Trace the so-called coincidences. How has your experience shown this? First, how does the passage show us this? There is a whole chain of interactions and decisions that had to be made for Paul to escape, and if any one of them had failed, he would have been killed and not made his way to Rome. First, the plotters had to miscalculate. Why would the informants let Paul's nephew know of the plan to assassinate his uncle? Commentators point out that it would have been very unlikely that the makers of such a solemn oath and of such a dangerous act of civil disobedience would have just let word out of this in a general way. A general way. Therefore, there are two possible reasons why the informants spoke to Paul's nephew. They might have been unaware of his relationship with Paul, but that's hardly likely. But if it was that case, we see the hand of God in this first coincidence. But it is also possible and more likely that the informants did not think that Paul's nephew would be opposed to the plan. Because Paul himself said in Philippians 3.8 that for Christ's sake he had suffered the loss of all things and it is usually inferred and very reasonably so that he was disinherited for his acceptance and proclamation of Jesus as Messiah. His father would have to be a provincial Roman citizen and would certainly be a very wealthy man. But it appears that the mother of this young man retained some sisterly affection for her brother and or maybe something of that affection was passed on to her son. Whoever the young man's informants were, it may have been common knowledge that Paul's bitterest opponents were the members of his own family. It's intriguing. It's possible, we don't know for sure, but why would the nephew have been let in on the secret unless it was generally known that his family was also against him? Second, Paul's nephew had to have courage and love. Evidently, Paul's nephew did care for his uncle and showed a great deal of courage to come and inform on the assassins. The commander's word to him to not tell anyone that you have reported this to me shows how explosive the situation was. After all, think about it, 40 assassins were virtually on a suicide mission. 
They were in a murderous, fanatical state of mind. The nephew had to risk his life to do what he did. He could have easily chickened out, but God's hand was on his heart. It's the only explanation that makes sense. God's hand, his power, was over the young man's heart. Though we cannot know more about Paul's family relationships, it appears that God had either had kept either his sister or at least his nephew close enough to the evangelist, even when much of the rest of the family was probably alienated. We see that it was not a random circumstance of history. If God had not appointed it, if the nephew had been an enemy, Paul would have been killed. But the commander here had to make a wise choice once he found out about what was going on. By the way, the commander here does become a spin doctor and twist the truth to make himself sound good in this letter to Felix. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the commander had to make a wise choice. The commander was Claudius Lysias. Uh, by his somewhat disingenuous letter, um, showed that he was not a paragon of virtue. Surely it was a great deal of trouble and bother to send out such a large entourage of soldiers and cavalry just to save one prisoner 12 times the number of the assassins. And by the way, he provides Paul not only a cavalry of 70 horseback, but even gave Paul a horse because that poor old guy couldn't make the trip. I mean, he's been beaten so many times. I'm sure he was disfigured. I'm sure he was about beaten down to nothing. I'm sure he was exhausted. And so he even provides him a horse to ride. And they leave at 9 o'clock at night. And they travel 37 miles the first day. That's, that's amazing. But Claudius, in any respect, was a man with a basic sense of justice. There were no charges against him that he deserved death and imprisonment. And in addition, he probably felt that it was time to be rid of the potential political trouble that Paul would continue to bring him. I imagine Claudius Lysias is thinking, I'll be glad when this guy gets out of here. Because he's doing nothing but fomenting rebellion, causing trouble. His very existence in this place creates tension and possibly rioting, that makes me look bad. So there was self-interest involved. There always is, especially in politics. You know that. That's not new. After all, what would be next? An outright assault on the barracks? Were the, eventually the, the Jews going to pull together the temple police and these assassins and assault the barracks where Paul was? The commander could not af afford to incur responsibility for the assassination of a Roman citizen or to expose himself to any of the other risks. He must inevitably run so long as he had Paul in his custody. So, a combination of self-interest, a sense of justice combined to lead this commander to save Paul's life. It's hard not to contrast Claudius Lysias with Pilate. Pilate too felt that his prisoner was not worthy of death, but he gave in to the angry populace by giving them a choice. But here God was directing the one in power to protect the innocent man. So a string of quote coincidences, mistakes, choices, and decisions all worked together to free Paul. All of these people were doing in their heart what they wanted to do. Same thing happened in the crucifixion of Jesus. 
by the Jewish authorities, handed over to the Romans. They all did exactly what they desired, thought was the best, what they most wanted to do, and at the same time it fulfilled God's predeterminate will and counsel. You can't beat God. You just can't do it. You can't box with him either because your arms are too short. But here's the thing. Paul is preserved. And, uh, you know, it, it would make any of us sort of have an uneasy feeling to know that 40 people had vowed never to eat or drink until they killed me. Is there any incident where a series of, quote, apparent coincidences were used by God to protect you from certain danger. Perhaps so. Perhaps many of you could tell stories where things were arranged. But I have to tell you, to read the tea leaves of providence is beyond us. We don't know how to do it. Uh, we, we can't figure it out because we don't, we don't have all the information and it's just too many things to keep up with. But why did Claudius Lysias twist the truth to make himself look good. Claudius Lysias shows his self-interest in verse 27 when he twists the facts conveniently omitting the fact that he did not learn Paul was a Roman citizen until he was about to be scourged. The commander says that he rescued Paul because he knew that he was a Roman citizen. That was simply a lie to make himself look good. How many of us are given to what I call impression management? We're sin managers. We want people to think well of us. We want to look good. We don't want to ever be seen as anything less than competent, anything less than the best motives, anything less than godliness. And in reality, how often have we lied to make ourselves look good? I have a sneaking suspicion based on infallible truth. God doesn't like that. He doesn't like that. And one of the things that the gospel does is it gives us incredible freedom. It releases us from the relentless passion to have others perceive us as good or better than we are. The gospel can deliver us from that passion because it tells us that it's okay to be who you are before God and Christ because God is willing to forgive. He's gracious, he's merciful, and he sees right through you. He knows you. Um, when I was a little boy, my parents told me this. I have a vague memory of it, but I don't know if I, I was, I could walk, but I was still in the baby bed, and so I, I actually broke a couple of the uh, spindles in the bed. And so they turned the bed around to the wall. They were going to outdo me. Didn't take me long to figure out that I could put my feet against the wall, my back on the other side of the baby bed, push the bed away from the wall, and I would get out, and I would tippy-toe around the corner and peep to see him watching television when I was a little boy. And they, I thought they, they couldn't see me. They didn't know I was there. And about that time, my dad would turn and he'd go, I hope that's not my son over there peeping around that corner. Because if it is, I'm going to take my belt off. And I scampered my way back. <laughs> I crawled my way back in the bed, did my best to pull myself next to the wall, and looked like nothing happened. 
God knows us. He sees us. He knows it's ridiculous for us to try to make ourselves look good. You're free in Jesus to be, I'm not saying you're free to be a slob or a loser, but what I'm saying is you're free to be honest. You're free to be candid. You're free to say, Lord, I'm struggling with this. And you know I'm struggling with, and you know what I'm struggling with is winning. Help me. That's the freedom the gospel gives us. Well, there's so much more here, and we could talk for days, but I think I got across absolutely what I wanted to get across to you. The treatment Paul receives from the Romans is in sharp contrast with what was meted out by the Jewish leadership who continue to pursue him by harassment, legal harassment. But one of the great things that this text has shown me is we can be overcomers and not be victims of the events and circumstances of life. Because ultimately God wins in the end and since we belong to Him, we win too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this uh, text. Oh, these texts are so rich, they're so full, and there's so much more than any of us can see or understand. But we thank You for what You said to us today. And we pray that you would encourage us and build us up. You would convict us and bring us low. You would show us Christ and bring us back up. And that we wouldn't live under the circumstances as a victim, but over the circumstances as an overcomer by faith. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.